Okay, I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so last time I started talking about cards from Zendikar. And I got to E, which meant I was not done yet. So today we'll pick up where I left off uh, with Explorer Scope. So Explorer Scope is an artifact that costs one. Uh, it's an equipment. When equipped... Uh, when an equipped creature attacks, look at the top card of your library. If it's a land, you get to put that into play tapped. So one of the things that you'll notice as we go through this card set that um, landfall, usually when you put together a set, you figure out what the, the essence of the set is. Usually there's, there's one mechanic that's kind of you are building the set uh, around, and landfall was very much the key um, mechanic of this set. Uh, and so, we had a lot of ways for you to get lands into play at, at different times. Uh, and so this one allowed you to get lands into play during an attack, which is tough. Because lands don't play at instant speed, so it's tricky to get lands in play during combat. Um, so anyway, and we also had a lot of... One of the flavors we had was we had a lot of our equipment was flavored as um, stuff to na- navigate with. That the idea of landfall was you discovering new areas, and so the tool, you know, the maps and the scopes and the things that help you um, find land are things that help you um, explore new territory with the flavor. Um, and anyway, anyway, this card was fun. I mean, I we've done uh, peeking at the top of a library before. Um, it's the kind of thing where um, we don't want to do it too much, uh, but a little bit is kind of fun and. Uh, looking for land's pretty good. One of the things you find when you look at the top of the library, they want to make sure that what you're looking for happens enough of the time that it matters. Because if it's too, if it's too, if it misses too much of the time, it's not fun. And land's kind of nice because land is 40%. So that's a, that's a decent hit rate. Um, a lot of times we'll do non-land. That, that, that's 60%, um, roughly based on a 4% land. Okay, next. Felidar Sovereign. It's a cat beast for 4WW. It's a 4-6, it has Vigilance, Lifelink, and then at the beginning of your upkeep, you win if you have 40 more life. So this is our alternate win card. So usually in a, in a, in a block, um, we'll have at least one alternate win card. So the idea of an alternate win card is, you know, Magic... Basically, Magic has a couple ways to win baked into the game. So the main way to win is I reduce my opponent to zero life. That's the major way to win. Secondary, there's a decking, uh, a decking thing built into the game to make sure that the game ends if nothing happens. So when you can't draw a card out of your library, you lose. Um, essentially, when you're, uh, the rule is that if I'm going to draw and I'm unable to draw, then I lose the game. So that's what's called decking. So those are the two natural ones. Um, but one of the things that's fun, and one of the things that makes Magic the Game it is, is that we are constantly shaking things up and changing things around. And so... Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the key to making, the key to what makes Magic a special game, I, I believe, is that, you know, it's different, and things work different ways. And so, one of the things that's awful fun to do, I, I like, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of alt-win conditions, alternate win conditions, because it's kind of neat to go, oh, well, normally I win in such and such a way, but this time I would do something a little different. Um, so this is a win condition that we've actually used once before, um, on a card, I think, called Test of Endurance. Although Test of Endurance, I think, was 50 life, and this is 40. Um, so the idea essentially is, um, you get this creature out, now he has vigilance. Not vigilance, sorry, well, he does have vigilance. He has lifelink, which gains you life. So inherent in this is the card says, okay, get me out, and hopefully I can get you to the win condition myself. 
Um, where Test of Endurance was like, hey, your deck has to be designed to gain 50 life. So, you know, um, the other thing that we always do in alt-win, or very often do in alt-win conditions, is it'll be a trigger. You notice that instead of just saying, instead of just being a static ability that happens whenever it happens, it's a triggered ability that happens usually beginning of upkeep. Why is that? Uh, and the answer for that is that we want to make sure that there's some answer to it. That, for example, this is a creature. So this creature has to be in play. So we want to give you a window where your opponent knows that you're going to win, but they have a chance to try to stop you. Um, in this particular case, because it's a creature, hey, creature kill is a very common thing. So you, we want to make sure in alternate win conditions that, that there's a little bit of, okay, I've set things up. Can you stop me before the beginning of the upkeep? Um, and, and that's why we do it. Um, I'm not sure why we put this particular... I mean, it, this is one of those old win conditions that just kind of we made and thought it was cute. It doesn't tie into the set particularly. Um, I mean, it's some, I mean, creatively it ties in, but uh, although I'm not sure I'm not sure quite whose cat beast this is. It must be one of, like, does the cores have a cat beast? I'm not sure. Okay, moving on. Next is Frontier Guide. So Frontier Guide, um, it costs one and a green. It's a 1-1 one, one elf scout. Uh, and for three green and tap, you get Rampant Growth. And by Rampant Growth, I mean you can search your library for a basic land and put it into play tapped. So, this is an example of a card. One of the things that we were trying to do is, um, most of the time when you play Landfall, you're playing it during your main phase. It, it, it's very much like a sorcery. Um, that you're playing at a time that's a very known time that you're not surprising people. But we wanted to have a little bit of surprise. Um, and so this is one of the cards. We have a bunch of cards. Uh, as we go through today, you'll see. We have a bunch of cards to sort of enable Landwalk. This is, not Landwalk, uh, Landfall. So this is another Landfall enabler. And this is one that enables you to do it at instant speed. Um, now, it's a bit expensive in the sense that it costs four mana to use this. So um, if your opponent, you know, mid-combat, your opponent has some idea that you have something. So one of the things we tend to do um, is if we're going to do something that's really going to make something happen in the middle of combat, uh, a lot of times we will, especially if it's a repeatable thing that's on the board, we will make it a cost a little more expensive so your opponent has to be aware that you can do it. Um, if it just costs one mana, it's very easy to kind of cast a spell and it just seem like you have one mana left over. Where four mana, you kind of got to commit to it. Um, I mean, sometimes you can fool your opponent into believing you just didn't draw anything. Um, so you can surprise them, but it's a little trickier, a little harder, um, and we definitely wanted this to be something where people were more aware they were walking into it and less surprised by it. Um, one of the general philosophies we have in general on what we call onboard tricks, which means uh, it's something I'm doing, it's on the battlefield, is people feel bad when they fall for onboard tricks because they feel like, oh, I should have seen that. And so we're trying to be careful not to make them too subtle. Um, it's one of the reasons we're extra careful about lands having activated abilities that happen during combat because lands don't even sit where people are paying attention to them. Um, and it's not, I'm not saying we never make them. I, I'm just saying that we are careful about them, that onboard tricks can be, can, can be frustrating if they happen too much. And so we want to be something that happens from time to time. Um, but especially tricks that happen mid-combat where really can wreck you in combat, we, we, we want to make sure that you have some, some opportunity for, for people to notice and it's not super subtle. Okay, next is... Gatekeeper of Malakir. Malakir? Malakir. So this costs black and a black. It's a vampire warrior. It's a 2 2. Uh, he's got a kicker of black. And if you pay the kicker, then target player has to sacrifice a creature. 
Okay, so this is a good example of a card. So one of the things I explained last time, that we definitely had a monocolored theme running through the set, that we wanted to enable some monocolored play. Probably the color we pushed the most in monocolored play was black, because black had a vampire theme, and the vampires were mono-black. Um, so this card's interesting in that it's... Um, in a mono-black deck, it's a very powerful card, because in a mono-black deck, it costs two, and then it costs three. So it means on turn two, you could do... Or with two mana, you can do this, and three mana, you can get the kicker. Um, outside of a mono-black deck, it's really hard to use, because it costs three black mana to use it most efficiently, you know, to, to get them to use the kicker. And so BBB, outside of a mono-black deck, is a, it's very, very hard. So this was a card we clearly were steering toward the mono-black deck. Very good in a mono-black deck, not hard to cast in a mono-black deck, really hard to cast out of a mono-black deck. Um, and this was a very good card. This card got, saw a decent amount of play. Um, you know, we definitely were, were pushing the vampires because it's the first time we had moved the vampires to a characteristic race. We, we wanted to make sure the vampires... It, it was something that you could do. Um, anyway, uh, here's something that I have not done in a while in, uh, in Drive to Work. I had to get gas. I did, this, I did this once about a year ago. Normally, I try to avoid getting gas during the show, but I was desperate. I, not, not, I, that's all I could do. I was running out of gas. My little gas light went on. and like, oh, I'm not going to make it to work. While some of you might enjoy the Mark Runs Out of Gas and Has to Call AAA uh, podcast that probably would run for a long, long time, um, I'm going to try to avoid that. So I'm going to try to continue my podcast while getting gas, which unto itself is quite the challenge. A little obstacle course for Mark today. Okay. So what's next? Uh, Oh, Gatekeeper Malakir. So, um, yeah, we definitely were were trying to make a very good vampire, and we wanted you to play a mono black deck. Um, This card ended up being, it was one of those cards that um, we thought were good. I think it was a little better than we thought it was. Uh, It turned out to be quite, quite, quite powerful. Um, Okay, so what's the next card after Gatekeeper? It's Goblin Shortcutter. So Goblin Shortcutter is a 1R21 Goblin Scout. Uh, and when it enters the battlefield, target creature can't block. Now, I love this card. I, I think this is the first time we made this card. Um, this is one of those cards that you think, like, I know we've done a couple different times, and it's possible that this isn't the first time we did it, but my memory is that it's the first time we did it, so uh, I'm going to pretend like it is. Uh, so one thing I love about this card is that uh, I love enter the battlefield effects that have, have some interesting variants on how much they can matter. Um, you know, that, uh, like, sometimes this ability is meaningless. If, for example, on turn two, if you play it, a lot of times you don't even have a turn one play to play. Um, but later in the game, you can draw it, and it can, it can swing the game. It can win the game. Um, and so it has a lot of variance in it. And that, um, I mean, a one or two one is fine as a two drop, so I don't feel bad if you can't make something not block. But it, it, it's neat in that it's a card that has value in different parts of the game, and that's really important. Um, anyway, I, I just, I mean... This is one of those things that, uh, as, a, as a game designer, sometimes the cards that you enjoy most are, are very subtle. Um, and this is one of those cards that really... Um, I, I th- think it does some neat things, and it, it kind of has a nice flavor. And Anyway, I'm, I'm a big fan of Goblin Sharp... Uh, uh, Goblin Shortcutter. Uh, Goblin Sharpshooter, completely different card, not this set. Okay, next is Grappling Hook. So I explained last time... Oh, Grappling Hook is an artifact, it's an equipment... Cost four, uh, equipped creature has double strike, and when equipped creature attacks, target creature must block if able. Um, so this was done literally, uh, this is top down. We said, okay, we need to make equipment. We want equipment to be something that you would actually use 
um, on the battlefield. Um, and so we, we, we spent some time and energy thinking about, okay, well, what, what kind of thing would you use if you were an explorer that would um, be useful as an explorer, but you could double as a weapon? Uh, and grab the cook, we're like, okay, okay, this is pretty cool, that obviously I can use it to climb, and if you've ever seen the, the art in any of Zendikar, there's a lot of climbing that goes on, but it's a hook on a chain. It's, it's, it's a weapon if you need it to be. Um, so the idea is it gave you extra reach, you know, like the, I could swing and I can hit you, so the double strike's trying to represent that, um, you know, it's fast and it, it has long reach, so it can hit you before you can hit it. And um, because it's a hook, you can grab things, and so the idea is the reason I can force you to block me is I can smack you with it and then hook you with it, and now we're in combat together. Um, and I thought, that, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and like I said, that was completely a top-down mechanic. And, and one of the things I was very happy with, which is interesting, is um, Zendikar was not a top-down set. You know, Zendikar was a bottom-up set. We were doing a land set. It was all about land mechanics. And so, I mean, I... I I like the fact that we managed to take a set that very much started from bottom up, but imbued a lot of top-down stuff into it. That while the set didn't come from a, a, a origin of top-down, it has a lot of top-down qualities to it that's very cool. That, you know, the, we managed to take a lot of elements of the adventure world. And like I said, um, Kicker and Landfall pre-existed it being the adventure set. But everything else in the set, the, the, the traps and the maps and the, or the quests and the allies, and all the equipment, all that stuff came after. Um, and that, I mean, I think that was pretty key, you know, to making, to making the set feel the way it did. Um, and so, anyway, I, I, I think, I, I was pretty happy with that. I, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, for one second, I'm writing down my gas so I know what I did. Okay, we're getting back in the car. So a little gas excursion. Um, if, you hear, if you hear all the traffic around me, that's uh, I'm, it's right in the center of everything. Okay, so okay, back in the car. Um, let's move on to the next one, which is Ghoul Gras Specter. Gras Specter. My writing is uh, a little sloppy there, so uh, uh, let's see. Okay. Um, Drool, Drool Specter. Is that how it's pronounced? Did I write that down right? Okay, so it's 2BB, it's a specter. Uh, it's got flying, and then, um, so, it, plus, plus 3, plus 3, if, if your opponent's hand is empty, and it's got the specter ability, which is whenever it hits you, uh, you have to discard a card. So real quickly, a little history on the on specters, and the hypnotic specter in particular. So in Alpha, Richard made a card called Hypnotic Specter, which cost one black and a black. Um, probably the reason it was so awesome was there was also a card in the set called Dark Ritual that allowed you on the first turn to get out the Hypnotic Specter. Uh, and for many years, people thought the Hypnotic Specter was broken. And the reality was it wasn't really the Hypnotic Specter that was broken. It was actually more the, um, the uh, Dark Ritual that was broken. Uh, and the Hypnotic Specter was pretty famous because when you get Hypnotic Specter out turn one... Um, now, Hypnotic Specter was random. I hit you, and you randomly lost something. You didn't lose something of your choice. Um, and so that meant Hypnotic Specter did things like could take land from you. It, it could be very, very devastating when gotten out early. Um, nowadays, we do very little. I mean, we do a little bit of random discard, but we tend to avoid cheap random discard that can make you lose lands before you get your mana base going. 
Um, so most of the, the spectability now tends to be your opponent picks what they discard, and it's not just, um, it's not random. In general, one of the things we've learned is um, there's a time and place for random, um, but random is, can be very, de- very uh, demoralizing, and especially on discard where it's one thing to say, oh, you have to discard a card, and that's painful unto itself, but randomly discarding a card early, like literally, um, and this happened back with the Hymn to Turok, which is a card of sorcery for black-black, where target opponent discards two random cards, and it was from uh, Fallen Empires, I think. It was. Um, anyway, and the problem with, the problem with him to Turok was that, you know, on uh, turn one sometimes, again, with a Dark Ritual, or turn two, that all you needed to do was just hit a land sometimes, and they lost the game. And, like, that's not fun. Um, it's, like I said, it's one thing to sort of punish them. It's another to keep the game from happening. And so we, we definitely shy away from it now. So this card is kind of fun. The idea that we're playing around with was... Um, we do specters all the time. In fact, usually they're flavored as specters, um, just like shades. That it's one of those creatures that pretty much one for one, like specters do. I mean, we we call it the specter ability, but it means uh, when you deal combat damage, they must discard a card. Um, so, couple things. Uh, usually, it's combat damage. So, one of the things that most people don't think about, but whenever you do a a tr- damage trigger, you have two choices. You can do a combat damage trigger, or you can do a damage trigger. So combat damage means I have to hit you. I have to hit you in combat. Where damage means well, no matter how I damage you, this happens. Um, most of the creatures, we try to make combat damage. If the intent of the creature is I'm trying to hit you, we usually do combat damage. Uh, and the reason is, um, for example, from time to time we'll make an aura that you know, grants the, um, the prodigal pyromancer slash you know, prodigal sorcerer ability where tap to do a damage. Uh, and if you anything that had that was damage based and not combat damage based, you could stick that on. And for example, making discard happen where you could do it at instant speed would be problematic. You would you keep them from ever having to. They never will be able to draw again. That's one of the reasons we don't do discard at instant speed, or very very rarely, is we don't want to set up a, a situation where your opponent never gets to play their cards. And so since we're going to make things that allow you to do damage at instant speed, like you know, um, can't blink in the name of the card, but cards that that. You know, graft on, tap, do one damage. Um, that, that means that stuff like this, we need to make sure it's combat damage. Um, and now, a lot of people probably, like, that's one of the things that we spend a lot of time and energy meaning. Anytime we're doing damage with something, we think about, do we mean damage? Do we mean combat damage? Um, and I, we'll, we'll have fights about that, and we'll discuss it, and it's an issue. It really matters. Um, and I, I'm sure a lot of people don't even think twice about it, because most of the time, you're just hitting them anyway with combat damage. Um, but that is the kind of thing we have to think about. I think this card, we were playing around with the idea of what if you had a specter that had sort of a, a built-in gulf. Felidar uh, Sovereign, I was talking about earlier today, had the same sense, where the card is going to do something, and then, you know, there is going to be... Essentially, there's a little game built into the card. Now, I like these, where the card says, okay, I, I'm, I'm up to something, and if I can accomplish my, my little task, my little quest then I will sort of upgrade and something good will happen. Now, Felder Sovereign, you're going to win the game. That's a pretty big quest. This one's a little less, but the idea essentially is it's a 2-2 creature that's been turned into a 5-5 creature. That's, a 5-5 creature is pretty substantial. So the idea essentially is if I can hit you enough that I can weave the cards out of your hand, then I'm going to get giant. And what it does is it makes your opponent have to be extra careful about not emptying their hand. So not only are you trying to empty it with your specter, but also you know, they, they are sort of, it keeps them from being aggressive with casting their spells as they can be.
Um, anyway, I, I think it's a fun card. Okay, next. Hegra, Di- Hegra Diabolus. Diabolus. I can tell, by the way, when I do these cards, trying to pronounce them is uh, part of the challenge. Um, so this is an Ogre Shaman ally. Costs four and a black. It's a 3-3. Three, three. It says when it enters the battlefield... It, well, I'm sorry. When it or any other ally enters the battlefield, target player loses life equal to your allies. Okay. It's time to talk about the allies. So one of the things I did... is I went back and listened to my first podcast on Zendikar to see what I talked about when I hadn't talked about. And I'd done it all in one single podcast, so I knew I couldn't... There's lots of things I hadn't gotten into, and I was hoping during these podcasts to talk about some of the issues I hadn't talked then. So Allies was a good one. So we, the, we, I talked a little bit about why we had Allies in the set, but I didn't go much beyond that. And there's a lot of actually interesting um, mechanical stuff woven into the Allies. I talked about how they changed completely during development, and Matt and I redid them. So let me explain a little bit about that. The Allies have a good story. Okay, so we knew we were in Adventure World. We knew we kind of wanted an adventure party kind of feel, that a bunch of adventurers gather together, you know. And so that's where the ally idea came from, the idea of an adventuring party. Um, and we knew we wanted a mechanic that cared. We knew it was going to be tribally based, meaning we knew all the allies would be ally creature type. And so we wanted to find a way to make it matter. Uh, and the goal was, the more allies you have, the better. You know, the, the more it help, helps you um, do the stuff you need to do. Um, so, what we did was, we said, okay, let's figure out, and I, I forget how we did it originally. Um, we did something, and it wasn't, wasn't very exciting, and so what happened was, when we got to development, development said, we're not real excited by this, uh, and I, I agreed. I said, okay, you're right, we could do better, and so um, Matt Place and I went off, and we came up with the following system that I'm going to explain to you how to do the allies. And the key is... Um, so the allies we decided is we wanted the following to be true. We wanted them to be allies, and we wanted the mechanic to be tribally based, meaning it cared about allies. Um, I liked the idea of having an enter the battlefield trigger because I liked tying that landfall was an enter the battlefield, and it had a sort of a flavor of the tempo of this particular environment. So I liked the idea of enter the battlefield. The other reason I liked enter the battlefield was... Um, one of the problems when you do too much static stuff, I meaning things that affect things in play, um, like slivers and things, is it can get kind of complex. Slivers have a nice built-in thing where all the slivers do the same thing, so all you have to do is remember what all slivers are. So it's got a little shortcut to remember it. But if you have things in play like all allies get this and all allies get that, and it, it, can, get, it can get complicated uh, at times without a, a nice clean system. So I said, okay, well, let's try things a little different. Oh, the other thing I explained before was the inspiration for doing the allies mechanically was to try to come up with a, a way to do slivers that were sliver-like but not too much like slivers. So I didn't want to do static abilities because that's how slivers do it. So I really was on the idea of let's do an enter the battlefield trigger. Um, and I liked the idea that the more allies, the better. I wanted you to care about having allies. Um, so what we came up with, with was the following is all the allies would trigger whenever they came into play or whenever another ally came into play. So that meant every time you played an ally, you would check all your other allies because, you know, essentially every time an ally came to play, all the triggers would happen. So the, it was the play, when you played an ally, you learned, oh, okay, what goodies do I get? And you would look around. So we actually had three different types of allies. Um, and at, at the time, we had names for them. Um, I think it was like fighter, wizard. They were named after D&D um, characters. 
and the last one might have been cleric, maybe. Um, okay, so the first type, uh, we called the fighter, I believe, was whenever they came into play or any other ally came into play, they got a plus one, plus one counter. So the idea is I get bigger, and, and as more allies show up, I get bigger and bigger. Um, now, the only problem we had was we needed, because we wanted it to, we wanted the template to be whenever I or another ally come into play, it meant that we had to let you get a plus one counter when this guy came into play, which meant in order for it to be the right power toughness, we had to lower it by one. So if we wanted it to be a 2-2, two, two, we made it a 1-1, one, one, and then when it came in play, it immediately got a plus one, plus one counter. The problem was it made these guys, this, the fighters, look sucky because they always had a power toughness 1-1 one, one lower than they really were. So if you were a 2-2 two, two creature, you looked like you were a 1-1 one, one creature, and players had to figure out, oh, they, oh no, 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 you really are a 2-2 two, two creature because you come into play with a plus one, plus one counter. So uh, they played well. That made them look a little weak. The second one was uh, what we called the wizard. And the wizard, when it came into play, it had an effect. Or when it or any... Sorry. When it or any other ally came into play, it had an effect. Um, and uh, the Hagra Diabolus is one of these. It created a spell effect. This one uh, makes the opponent lose life. Um, and that spell effect was a, a scalable effect which would be based on the number of allies in play. So the idea is, if you play a Hagra Diabolist, you know, that's your first ally, your opponent would lose one life, because there's one ally. Well, as soon as the second ally comes in play, they lose two life. Third ally, they lose three life. Um, and so the wizards always generated effects, and they had to be scalable effects. Um, the third one, which we called the Cleric, it buffed your team. Um, and so what it did is, it would... Every time it came into play, it would enhance all allies. Um, so, for example, you know, it, it would grant some, some keyword or some basic ability to your allies. And the idea was, every time you played an ally for that turn, your allies would gain that ability. Um, and so, uh, and that was a clear because it, it was like buffing all your creatures. It was helping all your creatures. Um, and so, those were the three different types of allies. And um, I remember we spread them out a little bit. I don't... One of the problems of talking about a set that I did literally, or literally, I, I did a while ago, uh, six years ago, seven years ago. Um, I, I don't remember all the details. I know we broke up who got wizards and who got clerics and who got uh, fighters, um, so that certain colors were better at certain things, so there was a different... Yeah, one of the reasons we, we split things up like this was twofold. First is, we want variety. That when you are playing, we want to make sure that... Um, you know, if you have a red-green ally deck, it's not just identical to the black-blue ally deck. That um, because we wanted the allies spread through all five colors, because it was important thematically, we wanted to make sure that the ally decks played differently depending on what you had. Um, and so mixing up how the ally... Now, the key was we wanted there to be a singularity so you knew how to play them. And the singularity was when you play allies, every time an ally comes in play, you get a goodie. So... Sometimes when your creature gets bigger, sometimes it generates effect, sometimes all your allies get the ability to the end of the turn, but you're going to get something, and you learn to look. When you're playing an ally deck, you always are looking for the allies. Okay. Um, the second reason we did it was there just was a limited amount of space. For example, there's only... Whenever we talk about scalable effects, we do this often. We'll have mechanics of scalable effects. There's a limited number of scalable effects, especially in certain colors. Um... And so part of breaking it up also was just enabling us to do more. You know, we, we, we were doing allies in um, 
Zendikar and World Wake. We didn't end up doing them in Rise of Drazi, which I admit was a mistake in retrospect, but uh, we were planning to have a, a complete cut in mechanics. And I'll, I'll get to that when I get to uh, Rise of the Drazi. Um, anyway, that, my friends, is everything you possibly could want to know, I believe, about allies. Which So, real quickly, um, allies were an interesting uh, mechanic in that they were not one of the more popular mechanics meaning when we graded the mechanics they were middle of the road they, they weren't people didn't dislike them obviously they, they were middle of the road but when you found people that liked it they really really liked it so it was one of these mechanics that um, the, the audience that it was that sort of embraced it really embraced it and like I said one of the biggest complaints I got about Rise of the Drazi are where are the allies and it wasn't even they wanted the ally mechanic they literally just wanted more creatures that said ally on them because every ally would trigger your ally, you know, your, your Zendikar allies. Okay, next, Harrow. So Harrow costs two and a green. It's an instant. Uh, you sack a land and you go get two basic land from your graveyard, uh, not graveyard, from your library and put them in play tap. You ramp a growth for two. So this card first appeared in Tempest, my very first set. Um, in fact, the, the working name for it, interestingly enough, was Crop Rotation. Which I thought it was a good name. Uh, I was sort of sad. Like, we later used Crop Rotation on a completely different card, but I thought it, I thought it was a pretty good name for this card. Um, so one of the neat things uh, uh, that I love is I love when you get um, reprints that are not something you use all the time. It's not a staple reprint. Like, look, we use Cancel all the time, so sets are going to have Cancel or Naturalize or whatever. But this is Harrow. Harrow doesn't go in every set. It's, it's a very particular card. So I love when you can do a reprint and bring something back... Um, that has a different meaning in where you bring it back from where it was originally. Um, and, I mean, to me, that, that's one of the cool things about finding the right reprints is I love giving new context to old cards. And Harrow is a perfect example. Now, Harrow was a fine card. In Tempest, it was much more about... It was partly about mana fixing, partly about, you know, ramping. Um, but here in, in Zendikar, with, with, you know, the Land of Landfall... It was surprise tricks a go go, you know. All of a sudden, when you don't expect it, not just a landfall trigger, two landfall triggers, um, and it was one of the major players, especially in limited. It it did all sorts of awesome things, and it fixed your mana, and it ramped you. So I mean, it, it just was an all round, you know, key player. So anyway, I, I I'm a, a fan of Harrow. Okay, next, Hedron Crab. So this is blue for a crab, a zero two crab that whenever you landfall, you mill your opponent three. So I talked earlier about win conditions. So milling is interesting. Milling is built into the game. Um, so in the se- second expansion, Antiquities, I introduced a card called Millstone. Uh, so I, I, I sometimes use the term, term mill. I, I realized I did that last time I was talking about Archive Trap. So mill, for those that might never heard of the term, because it comes from Magic Card, so the, the terminology is a little harder to know if you don't know it, means to take the top card of your opponent's library and put it directly into their graveyard. If you mill two, you would do two cards. Um, milling, the expression, comes from Millstone, which was the very first card to ever do this effect. It was an artifact in Antiquities, uh, which you would spend to, I think it was two and tap, and you made your opponent mill two cards. They took the top two cards from the library and put it in the graveyard. Uh, the reason behind milling is if your opponent runs out of cards, it's a win condition. So milling is a means by which you can beat your opponent by running them out of cards. Um, and milling has always been very popular. Um, we do godbook studies. I remember, um, was it Invasion? I think it was Invasion. Um, you know, that we, we look at 
or no, no, sorry, it might have been Ravnica. Where we, yeah, it's Ravnica. But like the number one and two cards in our Godbook study were both milling cards, black blue milling cards. Um, players, I mean, not all players like milling, some who don't, but uh, there are a lot of milling fans. So we tend to, milling is a theme we put in, not all the time, but a decent amount of time. Um, and Hedron Crab was kind of like, oh, here's a little deck you could build around. You know, I, I, I believe it was a common card, so you could hopefully draft a couple of Hedron Crabs and then go wild. Here, here's a deck that you could try to have some fun with. Um, and he was popular. He was a very popular uh, creature. Uh, people loved the little Hedron Crab. Next, Iona, Shield of Amira. So uh, uh, Iona costs six white, white, white. She's an angel, a flying angel. Um, oh, did you write her? I think she's a 4-4. Four, four. She's a 4-4 four, four or 5-5. Five, five. Um, when she's entered the battlefield, you choose a color, and then opponents... She must be a 4-4. Four, four. Opponents cannot play spells of the chosen color. So she is pretty brutal. She, um, so one of the things, I, I talk about this in my blog from time to time, which is blue is number one at counterspelling. White is number two. Now, most people don't think of white as being a counterspelling color, and that's because the way white does it is a little different than the way blue does it. Blue tends to do it as a surprise. You know, you go to cast a spell, and blue goes, uh-uh, sorry, canceled, counterspelled. Um, where white is more proactive in the way it counters things, which is, it says, okay... I come down ahead of time, and I say what you can't do. And now, your spells are countered. You can't do that thing. But it's not a surprise. It's proactive. And so a lot of people, when they think of counterspells, don't think of that as being a counterspell. Now, white does have access a little bit to do a little bit of taxing, a little bit of delaying. So from time to time, we infrequently do stuff like that. But more of white's counterspells is um, preemptive stuff is I'm going to set the rules, and I'm going to make it so that you can't do things, and I'm going to sort of preactively counter certain kinds of cards. Uh, and I, and um, I, um, Iona is definitely one of those kinds of cards. Um, and she can be a bit of a beating, especially in an environment where people sometimes can play monocolor. Like, if you're playing a monocolor black vampire deck and she comes out, she's expensive, um, she will cause you some problems. Okay, next, Journey to Nowhere. So it was an enchantment for one and a white, uh, and you exile a creature... Um, until this leaves play. So basically we had made a card called Oblivion Ring, which was an enchantment that um, got rid of any card. Um, and this was uh, basically Oblivion Ring for just creatures. Oblivion Ring, I guess, I guess costs uh, three mana, two W, I think. Um, so it's a little cheaper, but more pinpoint. Um, I mean, we had a, a lot of discussion about... Uh, I, we, I, this was one of those cards that I'd wanted to make, and so it, it, as the set I was working on, so I made it. Um, it was interesting in that it was there was a lot of comes into play effects in the, in the set. So exiling your opponent's creature could c- come back to bite you sometimes because um, if they ever got rid of the enchantment, then usually they got another trigger. Um, especially like if you got rid of an ally or something. Um, so sometimes it, 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 it can be careful. You have, you have to be careful against certain colors because sometimes. You know, getting rid of a creature could come back to bite you uh, if it had a strong enter the battlefield effect. Um, next, Jawar Isle Reserve, a refuge. Uh, the refuges. So this was an uncommon land. Common land? Uncommon? I forget. Uh, maybe it was common. Um, anyway, this was a land that, uh, it's a dual land that comes in and play tapped and it gives you a life. Uh, must have been uncommon. My guess is uncommon. Um, so. Basically, the idea was we needed to... Um, this was the land set. We wanted to give you a bunch of lands. Um, 
this is followed on the heels of uh, a gold block on, on uh, shards of Alara. So we wanted to give, we, we wanted to be able to give you some some lands you wanted. Dual lands made sense. These were more limited friendly. Um, and because you get a little extra something, the come and play tapped half for CD, you get a little tiny something. Uh, in you know, Return of Ravnica, you, you get the gate gateness of them. Here, we decided to give you a life. Um, this ended up being very, very popular uh, because obviously sometimes it's th- these were a budget. You know, th- these are these are easier to get uh, dual lands because they're uncommon and not rare. Um, and so a lot of people played them. And life gain is. Um, uh, Beginning players overestimate the value of life gain. So life gain is very popular among beginning players. And so these are the people that usually didn't necessarily have all the rares, so they got these uncommons, and they thought the life gain was awesome, so they were very, very excited by it. Next, Colony colony, colony Heart Expedition. One green, one in a green is an enchantment. Uh, at landfall, you get a quest counter, and if you remove three quest counters, you get a rampant growth for two. So continuing on my theme, you can see, of how we're trying to enable landfall. This card is doing a whole bunch of... This is a super Zendikari, Zendikari card. So for starters, uh, it is landfall, but not just any landfall. This card is a quest. So what happened was, originally, they actually were maps. Originally, we were going to make artifacts that would give you um, some objective to accomplish. And when you accomplish that objective, then you would get a reward. I think the earliest maps, the idea was you had to get different things. Um, kind of a little scavenger hunt. You need to get thing A and thing B and thing C, but if you do... Um, and they were tied together. I think I've told this one before, but like, um, you know, it was like, uh, I don't know, ne- Necromancer's map or something. And you had to go get, uh, you had to get a zombie out of the graveyard and you had to get a necromancer and you had to get an equipment that represents the shovel to shovel up the dead body. And then you would, you know, if you complete your quest, you'd make, uh, you know, a zombie that would serve you and stuff. Um, uh, so what happened was we realized that it was too hard to write all, you know, Go get three different things is a lot of words. And so we decided that instead we would have you do the same thing multiple times. So that, that was easier to write down. Um, and then at the, the Uncommon Rare, especially at Rare, we had more, you know, bigger quests and weirder things for you to do. But we decided that we wanted to do a quest of Common for Limited. Uh, and then we came across the idea of crisscrossing our landfall with our quests. Like, well, what if the quest is just to do landfall? Um, and so... This allowed us to sort of get the quest down at, at a low rarity. Um, and they actually they ended up uh, being, working out quite well. I was very happy with how they worked out. Um, oh, let me answer the question that everybody asked me about quests. Traps are a subtype. It's, you know, instant trap. Why weren't quests a subtype? And the answer is, I tried. Oh, yes, I tried. So here's what happened. What happened was, um, I really wanted to be quests, but the rules manager at the time, Mark Gottlieb, said to me, okay, they can only, you only use subtypes if they're mechanically relevant. And so I made a couple cards that cared about quests. Um, but none of them ended up making it through development. Development didn't like any of them. They ended up all going away. And since there was no card that cared mechanically, they weren't allowed to have the subtype. Um, and I think if Eric... Uh, Eric Lowe, oh, no, Eric wasn't the... Oh, no, Devin Lowe. Uh, Devin was the lead, the lead developer. I think if Devin understood that it wouldn't be a subtype if there wasn't one card, he probably would have left a card in. I, I think I knew that and put him in, and Devin just didn't know, and he was cutting stuff for numbers and things. Um, but that's why it's not enchantment, you know, hyphen quest, which it should be. Um, now, I, I, I differ a little bit on Mark. I mean, I, I understand where Mark was coming from because he's a rule manager, and he's like, look, we just can't have words that don't mean things mechanically. Either they mean something mechanically, or we can't have them on the card. Um, and... 
I believe at times there are things that help group things together and make people realize they're similar. Just like I, I believe ability words have function and, and, and meaning. I do believe that sometimes you want things. Uh, I, I'm a believer that you don't have to mechanically connect them. Now, that said, I was fine having a few mechanical cards. In fact, one of the things that was frustrating is because they didn't get labeled in Zendikar, um, we weren't able later in Worldwake to make one because they weren't, they weren't labeled. Anyway. Um, Oh, and the, the final thing is, so not only did we have a quest, not only did we have landfall, but also this particular card, once again, is a landfall enable that lets you go get lands. Um, you'll notice uh, there's a lot of rampant growth in the set, um, way more so than normal. Part of it was playing into the land theme, part of it was playing into the, you know, land, a landfall trigger. Um, but anyway, this card was fun. I, I was, this was probably my favorite of the common quests. I, th- I thought it both did good things for you, and the, the, the play pattern setup was very good. Next, Core Cartographer. So this is a core scout, a 2-2 core scout for 3 and a white. When it enters the battlefield, you rampant growth for planes. Ah, endless rampant growth. So the interesting story about this card is this card was a cycle originally. We originally had, I think it was common uh, in the original version, in in our original playtest it was common. And then we ended up, before we handed it off to development, moving to uncommon because they were a little too good. And then development said, okay, you got got so much rampant growth thing going on as as, as a parent here. We got to cut back. And they decided that, um, you know, green had a bunch of rampant growth thing, and white, we, we let white, any land is allowed to get its own land type every once in a while. Um, back in Scourge, there was land cycling, and Shards of Lara actually brought back land cycling, basic land cycling. Um, and uh, so it, it, it was color pie acceptable to do that, but it turned out to be a little too good. Uh, the idea originally was we were trying to uh, bleed into all the colors a little bit of landfall shenanigans, um, but it just was too much. And so what we ended up doing was, um, I think green did a different thing, and white white was the only one, I, I believe, of the cycle that stayed. I mean, I don't think green stayed, uh, but we got rid of all the others. And so it's interesting that this card has its own little identity now, but when it started, it actually was one of a set. Uh, and, but, and, but when the dust settled at the end, it stood by himself. Um, core Duelist. So Core Duelist is a 1-1 soldier for W. Uh, as long as he's equipped, he gets Double Strike. Um, so this was the thing I talked about a little bit last time, that we really were trying to make a strong tie between the Core and Equipment, um, that we were trying to say that they were, that, that was their specialty, that they were natives, you know, I, I talked about last time, that they were natives, we, we finally learned where the Core were from, they were from Zendikar, um, and that they, part of, of living in the, the crazy world of Zendikar, and trying to adapt was they'd become very proficient with the equipment they needed to survive. And so they had a special um, thematic tie saying we are good with equipment. And a lot of that, a very common thing to do with equipment is if I'm equipped. Um, because it's nice and thematic. It says, oh, well, you know, he's a master of all weapons. Just give him equipment and he'll, he will find a way to use it. And that's the flavor I love of this card essentially is. He's kind of like Hawkeye. He's like, give him any weapon. He'll be able to use any weapon. Even if it's not a weapon, he'll turn it into a weapon. Um, and I, I like that flavor. I thought that's kind of cool. Um, so, okay. So I'm finally at work. Let me check. Uh, I had a lot of traffic today. It's not even raining. Um, ooh, I had quite a bit of traffic today. You guys got an extra long episode. But luckily, I had many cards to talk about. So, um, I am going to stop for today because I'm at work. Um, but anyway, uh, I will continue next time as I'm up to K. So we got a little more to go. 
Um, hopefully you guys are enjoying this. I, I think it's fun to sort of walk through and I feel like I, because I did such a, I did a, a Zendikar in just one podcast last time, I had so much left to say that I'm really trying to hit a lot of the different stories. And I, I realize that people like me talking about the stats and talking about design. So I'm trying to do as much as I can. I'm trying to make each one last as long as I can because there's lots of fun, interesting stories. Zendikar is a really popular set. So I'm, I'm taking my time. I'm trying to tell lots of stories about Zendikar. But anyway, uh, it is time for me to get going. So as much as I enjoy talking about magic and talking about Zendikar, even more, I enjoy making magic. So it's time for me to go. Thanks for joining me today, guys.